we pick up tonight, particularly in verse 20, as we continue our evening a series through the life and ministry of Elijah. And if you don't have a Bible with you, you can find tonight's text on page 300 of one of the chairback Bibles. That should be nearby you. And we're going to work our way through verse 40 of chapter 18 to give us just that necessary starting point, however. I want to begin by only reading verse 20 and 21, and then I'll pray and we'll begin together. So listen once again as the Lord does speak to you through his perfect word. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray once again. Lord, we do ask that this night you would instill within our hearts a true faith, and that we might know what it means to follow you fully. And we do pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One of my seminary professors loved to quip, but seriously quip, that the text before us tonight, here in 1 Kings 18, is the perfect story, he would say, for middle school boys. And the reason he would say that is because it's got everything that a young middle schooler wants in a Bible story. Drama, action, characters, potty talk, which it actually does have, and bloodshed. And I thought about that when I first heard him say that in seminary, reflecting on my own experience and how as I sat there as a seminary student, realizing that perhaps the Sunday school lesson from that time of life in my own life that stood out more than any others just happened to be 1 Kings chapter 18 with this great contest here at Carmel. But I trust that you know that this is not, of course, a story that excites the imagination and interest of of young souls. It's applicable to, to every heart, Because it's perhaps the most profound and powerful commentary we get in all of the Bible on the first commandment. Because kids, I trust that you know what the first commandment is. Of course, here at Redeemer, we say it the first Sunday of every month, just like we did this morning, that you shall have no other gods before me. And here's a story of what happens to people that have other gods before the Lord. Because what we've seen in recent weeks through the story of First Kings, particularly in Elijah's ministry, is that he came at a time when the nation of Israel was entirely given over to the worship of Baal, that they were adding to their religious life in worshiping Yahweh and Baal. And what it was telling us is that people disobey the first commandment, not by atheism or abandoning God primarily. The way in which we disobey the Lord's command, break that first word there on the stone tablets, is we add to our worship of God. We worship God and something else. Our allegiance is to God and someone else. For here was a nation that sincerely believed that they were worshiping Yahweh while also worshiping Baal on the side that was 
ever more pressing out their interest in the Lord. And again, it's a story that shows us what happens when, when people break God's law. And it even shows us, doesn't it, what God does in mercy for lawbreakers there at Mount Carmel, for lawbreakers like you and I. So let's set the context for the contest that's before us. We saw in the first 19 verses of 1 Kings 18 last week that there were three servants of the Lord that came to the forefront. You had Ahab, king there in Israel. We said as a servant of utter failure. He was only leading the nation due to his love of his wife Jezebel primarily and his own sin, no doubt, into further idolatry by setting up these shrines to worship the pagan powers, primarily the pagan power of Baal. And it was inside his house that there was a servant of fear, this man named Obadiah, who secretly, subversively, was taking care of the Lord's word while he was feeding and giving water to these hundred prophets that he had hidden in caves. And there was also, of course, Elijah, the servant of faith. And we saw last week how the Lord had commanded him, Elijah, to return to Israel to confront Ahab. And he shows up and meets Ahab. And Ahab says, what do you want, you troubler of Israel? And Elijah says, hold on a second. You're the real troubler of Israel. It's your displeasure that has brought the Lord's discipline. You've displeased God in your sin. And now the time has come for this momentous confrontation. For you notice verse 19, where we left off last week. Elijah said, Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. We don't know how much time elapses for all the people in Israel and all of these 850 pagan prophets to gather at Mount Carmel, but the time passes for them to all arrive there. And so see if you can picture it in your own mind's eye with me together tonight. You have all of these people, thousands and thousands of people, as far as the eye can see, they're there at Mount Carmel, which juts some 1,700 feet up into the sky. If you were looking to the west... In all likelihood, you could see the Mediterranean Sea. If you're looking north or east, you could see the fertile Jezreel Valley. And it was there, as best we can tell, that by that point in Israel's history, it had become a place of Baal worship. It's why one scholar calls Mount Carmel Baal's Bluff. It's as though Elijah's saying, I'm going to confront the false god on his home field. This is going to be a tussle over idolatry on the idol's home turf. It's all set up for the Lord to singularly show that he alone is God. And of course, the contest itself, and in terms of its nature, is simple enough. You look again, verse 21. It's a question that begins the whole endeavor. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. So you can understand, students, simply, it's a contest here at Mount Carmel. There are two clear sides like every contest has. And just like every spiritual contest and battle has, there's the side of good, there's the side of evil, there's the side of light, there's the side of darkness, there's the side of unrighteousness and righteousness, there's the side of Yahweh and there's the side of of Baal. And so what I want to do is 
walk through tonight what is the two sides here at the contest at Carmel. We're going to see the vanity of idols, and we're going to see the victory of God. But what you need to see is, even as the ground rules are getting ready to come forth, notice the end of verse 21. And the people did not answer him a word. It's striking enough that here you have Elijah. He shows up and he demands an answer to God's people. Decide this day, much like Joshua in so many years prior, choose this day whom you will serve. Here he says, make up your mind. Yahweh or Baal. And nobody says a thing. Maybe they say nothing because they're embarrassed to admit something. King Ahab is there, surely in their presence in view. Maybe it's their own shame that's keeping their mouth silent. That's why old preachers that I have often read on this passage would love to speak about the need for preachers who can come and shut the mouths of sinners. I'm more inclined to see it as a passage that encourages preachers, teachers, Sunday school leaders who so often give their heart into speaking the truth and nobody seems affected by it. Of all people, in that moment, a courageous sermon was delivered And the people don't do anything in response to it. But they're soon going to respond, aren't they? So the first section we need to see is the vanity of idols. Because you notice verse 22 through 24, Elijah lays down the ground rules. And kids, we can summarize it in this way. He says, okay, you 850 pagan prophets, you take a bull. I'll take a bull. We're going to cut them each up. We're going to put them on an altar. And then look at the end of verse 24. You call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. Simple enough, right, in its terms. But what you need to understand is that, again, he's not just confronting Baal on his home turf. It's actually this not-so-subtle confrontation with who Baal supposedly was. Because we've seen already throughout chapter 17 and 18, there's this subtle mockery of Baal that exists throughout the passage. Baal, who is praised there in Israel, this pagan god that was said to be lord of the rain and the harvest. And what has happened for over three years? No rain. No harvest. The nation of Israel should have figured out by now that Baal is full of empty promises. But ancient depictions of Baal would often have him holding a lightning bolt. Because he was said also to be the god of thunder and lightning. The one that can send fire from heaven. And so Elijah's saying, well, let's see who's God can really send fire from heaven. And so he lets these pagan prophets start the contest. You'll notice in the following verses, they take a bowl, they cut it up. And then what we're told, you'll, you'll notice, is they begin to cry in the middle of verse 26, from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. It's this religious revelry, this raving that is utterly useless. Because idols can't hear. Therefore, idols can't answer. And so what Elijah moves to do is just mock their maniacal devotion. You'll notice verse 27, he says, cry aloud. For he is a god. Either he's musing or he is relieving himself. Or he's on a journey. Perhaps he's asleep and he must be awakened. You know, it was at this point in his book on Elijah that A.W. Tozer said, quote, Mockery is a dangerous weapon. 
And I think he's right in saying that. That mockery and sarcasm is a dangerous weapon. So oftentimes, I think in our context today, that Christians are quite skilled in mocking other Christians, being sarcastic towards the church. When what the scriptural pattern is, well, no, that mocking sarcasm belongs to exposing the foolishness of unbelief, uh, the foolishness of false teaching. That's what Elijah is doing here. He's saying, hold on a second, maybe he's caught up in the kitchen. Maybe he's stuck in the bathroom. Who knows, maybe he's even laying down on his bed. Keep crying aloud, why don't you, you prophets of Baal? And wildly enough, uh, they take Elijah at his word. Because they only increase the raving ranting. Notice what happens in the following verse. It's verse 28 and 29. They cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom. Swords and lances. Until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. And students, you need to understand there's a lesson to learn here. That it's always that way with idols. False gods. No one hears. Because there's only one living and true God. Thus, no one answers. Because, of course, there's only one God that can answer from heaven with that wisdom, that life, that forgiveness that we need in His Son, Jesus Christ. And so it's wanting us to reckon with the reality further that you can go about your life whipping up all of this energy and man-made religion and beliefs that are wrong, thoroughly, misguided in every way, thinking that it's going to bring you some degree of provision. Yet what do you Find out, ultimately and always, that God is not listening. That false promise will not fulfill what it has offered to you. And so it's exposing the vanity of idols. And it brings us to the winning side, as it were, verse 30 through 40, which is the victory of God. Because notice what Elijah does in verse 30. He said to all the people, come Near to me. It's an interesting thing that he says to begin his role in this contest. It's an invitation, isn't it? And I hope you've seen before that the nature of gospel ministry at its heart is an invitation. It's a constant welcoming of sinners. Uh, can you think of how that was true even in the Lord Jesus Christ's life and ministry? For he said, come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. He said, let the little children come to me, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. We've even seen recently in our morning studies through the gospel of John, he says, come to me, all who are thirsty, and I will give you that fount of living water. Elijah says, come near to me. And who's he saying it to? A nation that for years and years and years have only desired to go further and further into the rejection of God. More unrepentance, more idolatry, more iniquity, more sin, more people who are further and further with each passing year into undeserving of anything other than the Lord's judgment. And yet here comes Elijah and says, hey, come close to me. And I think that's what True gospel ministry and true gospel preaching always looks like. 
Because what's true of all of us in the room? That so often, each and every week, what have we done? In our sin, we've rejected the Lord's authority in our life. In our sin, we pursued our own lusts and passions and desires. And still, every single Lord's Day, when he gathers us together, what does he say? Come near to me. And so they come, don't they? In verse 30, and look what he does in the following part of our text. He repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Verse 31 to 32, Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And I want you to find it interesting that he takes 12 stones. The, the word therefore repaired, it more pointedly means something like healed, actually. He healed the altar. Now, you might know your biblical history well enough to know at this time, God's people were divided. So you had 10 tribes to the north, two to the south. Yet what's Elijah doing? Taking 12 stones, representing the collective united people of God, saying, here's where the altar of the Lord's fire is getting ready to fall. Surely it's meant to show us that it's only through true faith, true repentance, that there ever can be reconciliation and restoration of God's people. It's even interesting, he uses the language, notice again, verse 31, first about the tribes of the sons of Jacob, uh, this, this deceiver reality to his identity that was, of course, upon his conversion, I think, even to the Lord, his name was changed to Israel as one who prevailed with God. He's reminding, even in this healing of the altar, the work of the Lord and his past actions of grace towards his people. And so then he sets the stage even further, doesn't he? He tells the people, go fill up these four large jars of water. After he's dug a trench, he says, pour it on everything. They pour it on everything. He says, do it a second time. They do it a second time. And he says, do it a third time. And so they do it a third time. Uh, kids, it's, it's trying to make sure at one level that there can be no wondering before the people's eyes about any funny business with the fire. There's no spontaneous combustion that's getting ready to happen here at Mount Carmel. And then what does he do? It's a stark contrast to the prophets of Baal, ranting and raving. What Elijah does, calm, cool, and collected, offers the most basic Biblical prayer. You see verse 36 and 37. He came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. There's a couple of things I want you to see about this prayer. First, you note that it's covenantal in nature. He knows that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. He's the God of covenant grace to his people that has made covenant promises to his people. And he as the God of the covenant must fulfill and be faithful to those very promises. It's not just a covenantal prayer, isn't it? Also a clear prayer. What does he say? Answer me, O God. Answer me. I wonder if you've ever had the faith and the confidence to come to God's throne of grace and say to him, answer me, O God. Answer me. 
such as your confidence in the blood of Christ applied to your conscience, he who are eternal intercessor and mediator, that you too can come before the Father according to his covenant promises. Answer me. Answer me. But it's also a quick prayer, isn't it? It's not full of this flowery fluff propped up with all of these petitions and passages. It's to the point and it's direct. And I hope you know that sometimes the smallest of prayers offered in the truest of faith brings the greatest of answers. You know, we used to have a kid's Bible at home that took some of these great stories from the Old Testament primarily and in a really moving way uh, made them come alive to young souls. And one of the ones that we read for so many weeks and so often was this story here of 1 Kings 18 and the contest at Carmel. And uh, what we often found ourselves doing, at least as I was reading the story, is we, we'd come to the page where Elijah's praying. And after he's done praying, we would turn the page ever so slowly. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that you have turned their face back. And you turn the page slowly. And you pause for a second with the kids, I would just scream out loud. Fire fell from heaven. Because it has to be something of what happened there. Elijah praying. And then, can you imagine what it must have sounded like? What it must have looked like? What it must have felt like? That fire comes down from heaven. There goes the offering. There goes the altar. There goes the water. There goes the dust. The Lord has shown up. In our English Bible, it says, doesn't it, there in verse 38, seven words, then the fire of the Lord fell. That's one of the simplest statements that means so much, according to Scripture. The fire of the Lord fell, and clearly the contest is done. There is one God who lives. There is one God who reigns. There is one God who demands our very life. Now, if the Lord tarries and we get to November 5th of next year, I suppose you could wake up in the morning, turn on your TV to some news station, and you'll likely be greeted with some type of a title that says, Decision Day as the nation goes to vote on who's going to be the next president. And in a way, I want you to feel in all the force and fullness that the passage demands is that this is a decision day for all of God's people. What has Elijah done but summoned Israel to a decision day? And so what I want to do here at the very end is help you see two final things to which this contest at Carmel calls us. First is the contest calls us to a decision Choose this day whom you will follow, is what Elijah says. And students, recognize the reality may not be that you are following a pagan god like Baal or tempted to follow an idol that you might set on your mantle at home. Uh, But does not the same decision belong to you today? Whom will you serve? God or money? God or pleasure? God or worldly security and comfort. It's clear enough what the nation of Israel decides. Notice verse 39. They saw it. They fell on their faces. Because of course they could only say this. The Lord, He is God. The Lord, 
He is God. And I hope you've gotten to a point in your own life that you can sing along with that old gospel hymn, I have decided to follow Jesus. But that's even the next thing you need to see. The final thing you need to see, no turning back. Because it's a, a contest that calls not only for a decision, it's a contest that calls for devotion. Look at verse 40. Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. You know, I've read through this revised common lectionary that belonged to a lot of American mainline Protestant churches in the 20th century. And when the lectionary gets to 1 Kings 18 and its annual readings, it actually leaves off verse 40. And it has to leave off verse 40 because it doesn't like the violence of verse 40. But in doing so, tragically, it does violence to God's word, doesn't it? Because what's happening here in verse 40 is nothing other than obedience to the Lord's command. You can write this off to the side, Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 5. That if anyone leads God's people astray into rebellion, that one is to be cut off. You're to purge the evil from your midst, is what the Lord said. And surely you understand that it's true for all those that follow Jesus Christ and decide to follow him. Part of following him is a life full of devotion and obedience and holiness. That means putting sin to death. Mortifying the deeds of the flesh that we might walk in true holiness and obedience before the Lord. But no doubt it's a mountain contest that is a shadow of another mountain contest that did come. Consider the parallels. You know, it's a mountain outside of Jerusalem. That God, in the crucifixion of His Son, Jesus Christ, wages war against the cosmic powers of darkness in the heavenly places. That He disarms them, Colossians 2 says, and puts them to open shame. As there, of course, at another mountain, that the fire of judgment fell upon a sacrifice. The sacrifice, of course, was none other than Jesus Christ Himself. And just as the text is going to go on to show us, Lord willing, next week, the fire of judgment fell and then rain followed. The fire of judgment fell upon Jesus Christ and the rain of the new covenant Holy Spirit poured out upon God's people is soon going to follow, bringing life to the new world. And maybe you know your gospels well enough that when that fire of judgment fell there at Mount Calvary, there was a centurion that said what? Truly, this man was the son of God. The Lord Jesus Christ, He is God. In Jesus Christ, the Lord has conquered sin, Satan, and death. There is but one living and true Savior. You must decide this day to follow Him. You must understand that your entire life's devotion must be to follow Him fully. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that in Christ Jesus, our Savior, you have canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, that you set it aside. The penalty and punishment that we deserve by nailing it to the cross, the very place where you disarmed the rulers and authorities. You triumphed over them in your Son, our Savior. Do let us know what it means to follow him with our heart, our soul, our mind and strength. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.